Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Dr. Pamela Epstein-King from Fuller Theological Seminary. She's the executive director of the Thrive Center and the Peter L. Benson Professor of Applied Developmental Science in the School of of Psychology at Fuller. Besides the book that we're speaking about, Thriving with Stone Age Minds, Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing, which she co-wrote with Justin L. Barrett, Pam is also the co-author of The Reciprocating Self and co-editor of The Handbook of Spiritual Development in Childhood and Adolescence. You're going to love this conversation because we get into the intersection of evolutionary psychology with theology and reflection on what it means to thrive and flourish in today's world as the people that God created us to be. She asks big questions. Uh, Pam's interest really is in this issue of thriving and what the meaning and purpose is for our lives. And so listen in as we draw off of her wealth of experience and knowledge about science, as well as she draws on Christian theology. So let's jump right into this interview. Hey, Pam, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, can and you can you share with uh, with everyone listening some key moments in your spiritual journey that have led you to embrace uh, a call to teach and to write, and then how does this latest project that you did with Justin Barrett, Thriving with a Stone Age Mind, fit into this trajectory that you've been on? That's a great question. I, um, I, um, yes. So I had a very specific moment when I was a graduate student uh, as a master's of divinity, when a, um, at then time, another student, but became another professor, um, asked me like, hey, what pushes your buttons? And and he didn't mean in the aggravating way, but like what lights you up? Mm -hmm. And spontaneously, I said off the top of my head, um, enabling people to become who God created them to be. Um, and in, in quickly in the next year, I ended up using the language of thriving to talk about this idea of becoming who God created you to be. And so as I pursued my studies, I, I was really looking for that in my New Testament classes, in my theology classes, in my practical theology classes. And, and I wasn't finding all the answers that I wanted uh, regarding how do I enable people to thrive or become who God created them to be. So I started taking electives in the School of Psychology, um, and that was somewhat satisfying, um, turned into a PhD eventually. Uh, But even upon graduation, I still had this question. And so um, 21 years since my PhD graduation, I am still asking that question is, what does it mean for diverse persons, all types of people to thrive um, in in their location, in the bodies in which they're they're given or grown into, um, and and how do I enable others to enable people to thrive? Um, And so as a graduate student, got the opportunity to do some teaching as a teaching assistant and just got really excited about the idea of equipping future leaders who would go out and impact lives. And I thought, hmm, if I keep impacting future leaders, I can leverage my efforts and have more impact eventually. So so that's kind of where that sense of call as a teacher, professor, writer um, has emerged from. 
And I, and I love that language that you use, the person that God created us to be and thrive. And it's and, and when you look at the, the book Thriving with Stone Age Minds, how, how do you define thriving? And before we started recording, you kind of contrast that a little bit with just surviving. So what's mm-hmm. the difference between thriving and surviving the way that you're using those words? Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you that I've been at this for over 20 years of trying to understand what thriving is. And I come from it from kind of an interdisciplinary perspective, both psychological and my main affiliation as a psych discipline would be developmental psychology Mm -hmm. um, and also very systems culturally oriented. And then also I have, I know enough to be dangerous theologically, but not not a theologian uh, per se. But I have come to understand thriving as the process of growing and adapting towards God's purposes for us. Uh Um, And sometimes I use that word telos, which you and I alluded to in our pre-conversation, to understand purpose. So have a pretty clear framework of how I think about what human purpose is about. In in what would, how would you actually say, what is the purpose of of humans? Why did God create us? It's a great question. And I can go back to the surviving part too. So my best understanding of why God created us, and we'll just say that with like lots of grains of humility, because of course we cannot completely understand God's intentions. Um, But for us to know and love God, um, I love the Heidelberg Catechism of glorifying God and enjoying God forever, which I think the Christian tradition has somewhat overlooked the enjoying God forever part. Um, So I understand that if we're all created to grow in our relationship with God, experience unity with God, or glorify God, that's a very general sense of purpose that all of us as followers of Christ can locate ourselves or identify with. However, how that's lived out individually is very different. And so I have really turned to the Imago Dei, um, the doctrine of the image of God in my work to think about, hmm, if, if, if we are created in God's image, What does it mean to image God? And shouldn't the purpose of humankind be entwined with that? So in my work of unpacking my best understanding of the image of God um, and definitely identifying that the image, the perfect image of God is, is apparent in Jesus Christ, that becoming like Jesus as we talk about being conformed to the person of Christ has something to do with our purpose um, or imaging God. Um, but I would argue based on um, a more Trinitarian understanding of the image of God, that although we're all called to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, conformity and uniformity are very different things. Mm-hmm. And that we are not all called to become uniform to Jesus, um, and that we're all called to be like Christ, to live out God's presence on this earth as our unique selves. So I would hope that Jesus and Brian looks a little different from Jesus and Pam, um, from Jesus and my husband, that we all have a unique gifting, um, a unique way of being in this world, and that part of our purpose is found in that human uniqueness. Um, and so I say that um, our purpose is found at the intersection of how God is inviting us to become more like Christ mm-hmm. as our unique selves. But then a Trinitarian understanding of the image also has to do with communion and relatedness. So 
also how God is calling us to grow deeper into relationships. Um, and I, I think specifically about those that God is calling us to be deeply known by, that are relationships marked by intimacy and accountability, but also relationships that are maybe beyond our inner circle where we are contributing um, and giving back. So I find purpose at the intersection of becoming like Christ as your unique self, as you are living in reciprocal relationships with the world around you. And so, so take that back a little bit and, and contrast that with just surviving. So where, how would that fit in if, if yeah. thriving is this growth with a, with a purpose? Mm -hmm. Is surviving just the opposite of that? Or so how do you think about surviving? Yeah. So I do not quite think of them as opposites. So I often like uh, for short, uh, shorthand talk, we'll say above the line growth mm -hmm. and below the line growth and above the line would be thriving. And that would be purposeful growth where we are intentionally pursuing purpose, goals, developing meaning. We are inspired uh, by faith, by others, etc. And then there's this below the line stuff that we have to tend to that I put in the surviving realm. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I, or some of the ways that I contrast surviving and thriving is surviving is really about getting by mm -hmm. um, and being often it has to do with being motivated by fear. Yeah, so we, you know, even in developed nations, uh, early, you know, pandemic days, we were in survival mode. Like, how am I going to get groceries? How am I going to find toilet paper? Costco's out, et cetera. So these are getting by. These are not necessarily purposeful pursuits. The other thing that I really noticed in those early pandemic days that goes with surviving is a me orientation. I am looking out for myself. I am out looking out for my people, my family, where a thriving orientation is really more about us or about them or about you. It's a broader orientation. It's that deeply related orientation. Um, surviving has all to do with coping and getting by in adversity, making sense of that, where then thriving would be more about hoping and actively anticipating a purposeful, hopeful future. So we kind of have that me, mine, us, ours, uh, coping, hoping, um, and then that motivated from fear versus motivated towards purpose or towards me. Those are three ways. When you talk about being like running away from fear, if you want to think about surviving is that over against, um, I guess I'm hearing pulled by a purpose somewhat. And, and you've talked about the Heidelberg uh, catechism just a couple minutes ago, or it's the it's the love God and enjoy him forever. Mm -hmm. So do you see love and thriving and growth and love and thriving is almost synonymous ways of talking mm -hmm. about purpose? Is that what I'm hearing mm -hmm. you say? You know, that's a great, I'm, 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 I'm working on that right now, but I would say, so this I'll put on my developmental psychologist hat, no growth happens without love. Mm. You know, we know infants do not thrive. That's a technical term in infancy is thriving. And it has more to do with physical thriving. Um, they, uh, there's an APGAR test that all infants are given at birth. And, mm -hmm. and there's like nine criteria they have to meet. Uh, but we know when children are not given love, even if they're just given, you know, they're given food, uh, physical safety, if not love, they do not grow. Uh, their brains do not develop. Um, the increasing science that is often referred to as interpersonal neurobiology, we know that minds that experience love, safety and love, 
where they are mirrored, where they're attuned to, where they can experience their own going on being, that's a Winnicottian term, um, but they um, grow and become themselves. And so there is no thriving without love. Um, I don't think we find purpose without love, but love helps bring those about. And I, um, Henry Nouwen has a beautiful quote that I can't cite verbatim, but it is something about our human vocation and that our vocation is to be God's loving presence in this world as ourselves. And, and I understand that humans um, can understand and find their vocation as God's loving presence only in their own experience of God's love through the Holy Spirit or through other people. And that when we experience God's love and grace, we can respond and offer up our lives as holy and pleasing living sacrifices that are offerings of love. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about the book is, is, is uh, you and uh, Justin Barrett, you worked on uh, integrating insights from evolutionary psychology, and you brought in your developmental piece and this telos piece, and you mixed, and you mixed theology in there. And so how, how far does just the science itself get us to purpose and thriving? Then um, I'll follow up. Um, with, with once you answer that one, I again, mean, that's a big question, obviously. Yeah. Oh, that's a huge question. I, I think, Brian, that was perhaps like the juggernaut of the yeah. whole project. And, he, and here we set up this, you know, rather uh, esoteric project. Like, how does evolutionary psychology and Christian theology inform us about thriving? Yeah. And part of the way we structured the project is we spent a cons with three years amount of time on the science and also the theology, and then with practitioners and in integrating it. Um, and we actually brought together a forum of scientists that were involved in whether social science or biological science or evolutionary science together to talk about how does evolutionary psychology help us understand thriving. And the, we hit a wall. So I think what was a huge breakthrough and a wonderful offering of that book is this nature niche gap yeah. Um, and, and I don't know how much you want me to unpack that for your listeners, but we understand that as humans, um, we are given, you know, we have capacities. Um, as humans, we're always like solving problems by nature, we do that. And so we live in what uh, evolutionary folks would call a niche, that's our environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so every time we have a problem, humans use this glorious, amazing brain situation uh, to solve problems. And so we started to understand thriving as the ability to, quote unquote, mind the gap, that phrase from England. But how do we use our brains to close the gap between our niche and our, I'm sorry, between our nature, who we are as humans, and the niche? And, and let me give you an example. So um, from an evolutionary perspective, species mutate, their genes change. So over lots and lots of time, zillions of years, um, in colder climates, species that grew more fur outlived and survived. Um, so humans, though because of our head, we don't have to grow more fur, we make sweaters. We you know, have puffy jackets, we invent Patagonia. So we use our mind to solve these problems. And that's what we mean by minding the gap. However, 
every time we solve a problem, we create a problem. So I live in Los Angeles and Pasadena. And uh, in the 80s, smog was a huge issue here. Mm -hmm. So humans created cars to get across the expanse of Los Angeles to bring people together through our crazy freeway system. But in solving that problem of distance, they created smog. Then we create vehicles that are more climate sensitive. And now we got to dispose of car batteries. Um, so we're constantly solving problems are, and creating new ones simultaneously. So thriving, we defined from an evolutionary psychological perspective as closing that gap, having a closer alignment between the nature of humans and the niche they live. And the wall we hit was, well, is it the one with the more toys wins? Or what direction does this thriving project go from a science perspective? if it's just about bridging the gap and forever perpetuating new problems. And so we really concluded that um, science is pretty limited in that regards and that we really need meaning systems um, and some sense of value orientation to say what direction we should continue that problem solving in. So that's where we felt like evolutionary psychology and Christian theology were actually grateful, great dialogue problems. And Evo Psych shed some light on how we get to, to thrive, like to what ends or how we get to the ends. And then theology is more suited to say to what ends. So when, when you look like when I, when I read the, the book and I, again, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, let alone an evolutionary a psychologist. Um, I, when I thought about the thriving with stone age minds, and then I, and I did, you know, and thanks for explaining the nature uh, niche gap. So what is it uniquely about say the 21st century that's created this thriving problem that, that, so in a sense, it's, I got the impression that our brains are stone age, if you will. So I was a hunter gatherer at some point or, or whatever. Now I live in like, for me, I live in Orlando, Florida. So I'm in this super urban area. It's actually, you know, it's so hot here. I need an air conditioner or there wouldn't even be in Orlando. So yeah, I have all these things, you know, we're talking on zoom <laughs> versus talking face to face and all this whole right. thing. So right. what is it about the 21st century? That's maybe, um, is it the right is it the right word? It, it sort of exacerbated this nature niche gap that creates the problem where we struggle to thrive with the software package or even the hardware package yeah. that we've inherited from um, evolutionary biology or what however you want to think about that. And then how does theology actually help to solve that? And so that maybe theology is just as relevant in the 21st century mm -hmm. as the science piece. Mm -hmm. any, any thoughts about uh, that? Like what is the, what, what, what creates this big problem today that uh, there's this gap? I love how you put that all together. That's really fantastic. So yeah, let's just go back to that hardware software. So I'm sure the metaphor falls flat somewhere, but yeah. sure, if we think of our minds as hardware, yeah. This is what it came with. This is how we're, we're physically, biologically created. Um, our learning is probably somewhat of a software update. That's good. Um, 
And so, you know, every, every version you download has a bug, right? <laughs> so somehow the hardware that we have, and I, I'm dealing with a Mac right now that's like, just like about to die. It's like, it won't, it won't take any more updates. There's no more room in the inn. And we've somewhat done that to our brains. Like we were created, the brain has not evolved genetically. It has not changed for a long, long time. But yet we're doing more and more complicated functions with it. Um, so this, this is a tension that we have to live with. Part of the project that I was so excited about in our research, what we identified was that human, the human species, fundamentally, we thrive by learning. So we need to learn. We love to learn. Our brain feels good. We get dopamine hits when we learn new things. And we constantly have to learn to bridge this gap. Um, secondly, as we said earlier, we're relational, we're pro-social human beings. So we need to stay deeply connected and known by people. Then thirdly, we regulate. So humans have this crazy thing called self-control. We can um, you know, delay gratification. We can, uh, we have practices that help regulate our emotions. Um, another form of regulation is goal setting. Mm -hmm. We can select goals, we can change them, we can practice, train to optimize them. Um, we, we have these really fascinating capacities, but then plop us into the 21st century. Um, there's so much to learn, right? You know, thank you, Google. Um, we can become experts in so much. And, and often there's an, a need to learn a lot. I mean, you and I both know as academics, we now have access to both depth in our fields, but also making the connections like we are today about yeah. other fields. Um, I need to figure out how to enable my computer to update. This is like, I don't have that skill set, but there's just so much to know, uh, whether it's about our children or our families, et cetera. Um, and we are exposed to so many people to go to the relate. And, and I would argue perhaps this excessive opportunities to learn, the excessive opportunities to relate are too I don't know if temptations is the right word, but I think it's appropriate that our world, I was gonna say daily confronts us with, but you know, like minute by minute confronts us with. And one of the things that this project helped me realize that more is not always more. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to relationships, there's a lot of research that demonstrates that humans have a relational capacity. We can really only manage so many intimate relationships in our lives. And so this puts folks like pastors or professors really at risk because we are uh, engaging with so many people at very intimate levels. So it challenges models of ministry of like how many people can one leader really effectively care for um, and and. How, how can we do that kind of ministerial or pastoral care in a way that doesn't burn out the pastor? Um, how, I mean, I think one of the major issues, especially coming out of pandemic living is social support for leaders. So pastoral leaders are so strained um, by having to reimagine church, reimagine worship, dealing with political polarization and polarized uh, congregations and, and pastors don't have a lot of social support to begin with because they're often the leader. So for me, our work really challenges like 
how can we, you know, find five, five people that we stay deeply connected with in a disciplined way um, that we are, you know, whether it's Zoom when we can't physically gather or they've moved, which is another weird thing that we do as opposed to more stone-aged persons. <laughs> um, we collect a lot of people in our, our transitional life. Um, but then, and I know I'm imagining close to your heart, um, is this third capacity of regulating, that as, as people of faith, we're so fortunate to have actually a, a toolkit of spiritual practices that help us regulate. Uh, but at the broader environmental or like U.S. culture level, there's not a lot of reinforcement for those regulating and those spiritual practices. I think the mindfulness movement um, is actually elevating the general public's recognition of the importance to calm down, to attune to one's feelings, uh, attune to what's going on around you. Um, but that is not something by and large we've practiced uh, as a society that I think we really need to counteract the influx of the social demands and the, the learning demands. I want to go back to the piece with all the excessive opportunities to relate to folks. Um, I, like, I never thought about it. I mean, as soon as I read, I'm like, you know, that does make sense. But it's like the whole business about how many people you would have known at different points. Like you mentioned five. And I think the high end number was what it's like 150, right? That would be like yeah. a clan or a group of cluster of extended family and some exactly. other folks. Yes. And to me, like, and I, and I was even when I was on the beach, when I was reading the book, I was telling my wife, I'm like, you know, just think about it. If, if we lived, a, what, even 50 years ago in certain parts of the country, yeah. you might not have never seen somebody that you didn't know. And I was thinking, like, living in Orlando, I almost never see anybody that I actually know. <laughs> and um so that, that was one real big insight that has implications for that. But then I was thinking just from a pastoral perspective, and, and you took it from the perspective that being pastors can make, you can be really lonely because you're socially isolated in some ways. But I was also wondering about that number 150, because when you think about church sizes, a, a lot of times there's this desire to grow these huge churches. Um, and I was wondering again, you know, I'm not against big churches and doesn't make a small church better than a big church. Cause I mean, you could have unhealthy at whatever size, but I was, I was thinking, what are the implications for pastors, especially if we think we just have to keep growing our communities bigger and bigger around the very limits that we have. It seems like it's um, biologically imprinted on us that, you know, if I'm a pastor of a thousand people, there's no way I know a thousand people. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. so have, what do you think about the implications from some of the research on the, how we do ministry, not saying that we need to shrink churches all of a sudden, but what, what are some of the implications for pastors for this, um, the, around the, the relational uh, parts of being a human being? Yeah, no, I think there's really specific implications that have a lot to do with whether it's lay leaders or other staff that um, there is a real intentional, uh, like, I don't like the word hierarchy. That's not 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 what I'm looking for. Right. But that people are known and, and there's a plan for how people are shepherded and known, whether it's small groups and training of facilitators, um, but a, a sole pastor cannot, I mean, a megachurch, sole pastor can't know 5,000, 10,000 people. Um, and so I think being really clear and intentional about who is known by whom is, is really important. Um, 
some of the work example uh, that I've done around adolescence and youth development, um, there's a program out of Minneapolis at the Search Institute that talks about developmental assets and, and being known by caring adult at your school is one of them. And, and I've heard of schools who take this work seriously, literally bringing faculty and staff from groundskeepers to the you know headmaster principal and dividing up the roster list of the school of like, okay, these are your five, you know, mm. these are kids you're gonna greet once a week by name. They are gonna feel known by you. We just wanna make sure that every kid, every student on our campus has an adult who, who's keeping eyes on them. Um, and I, I don't know churches that do that. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting idea of like, okay, we wanna make sure all those people in our pew or on our Zoom team, team, screen um, are accounted for and are known by somebody in our network. Um, and that I think would go very far. But yeah, let me just, yeah, I was gonna say, well, let me ask you a real specific question. Just, just occurred to me. So like, you know, people have different ideas about how big a small group should be. And I'll, sometimes we usually default to like 12 because Jesus had 12 disciples or whatever. I mean, what do you think about that number five as the ideal size? Is there, are there implications about that or maybe five couples or like what, what are, do, what, what, are what are your thoughts from a, a educational psychology perspective on like, what's the ideal small group with mm -hmm. this, the research that you've seen? Well, I, I will caveat by saying like there could be research that shows five tend to be great, but there's always exceptions. So, right, right. And then I think we have to consider the purpose of the group. Is it a teaching group, a Bible study? Um, yeah. But if it is deeply about sharing life or like a group spiritual direction where it's very in-depth about sharing nuances and intimacy, I think like seven-ish, five-ish is going to be closer. Um, and then if you think about an individual that might really have like their inner circle of five people in their life, that may not be their small group. Right. Um, those might be the people that they really share their struggles spiritually or about their relationship with God. Um, but it may not be the people they're cooking for when there's a surgery or a problem, because you can only do that for so many people. So I think, you know, even um, one uh, spiritual practice, the rule of life, um, is perhaps intentionally this day and age, we need to be really clear about who we're responsible to um, and, and who knows us. Um, I, um, I have a, I have two brilliant brothers. One and I, one and I did an interview, something for Fuller Magazine on technology um, and thriving. And he he's a Microsoft um, VR guy, does a lot on ethics and technology. Um, but one of the things that he really pushed to me was that, yeah, no, true relationships are marked not just by a feeling of intimacy and being known, because we can all spill our guts on Twitter. Twitter or Facebook uh, or on a reel on Instagram and feel, and people can feel intimate, like they know us, but is there accountability? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that accountability piece is really important. So who are the people that we're accountable to and, and we're holding accountable as well? Um, and, and, and in what ways? Um, something that I think is less um, of something Americans think about today is our neighborhood where we live. Um, we often, our identity stems from our work affiliation, our scattered family, um, but quarantine, you know, brought a lot of people home, literally, um, and possibly more limited to seeing their neighbors, unlike they had historically. Um, and that's something that's really challenged me, is what is, I want to be responsible to these people on my street, and I'm so grateful for having had the opportunity to get to know them um, 
more during, we had sidewalk walks, social distance sidewalk walking on Friday evenings. And that was lovely. And, you know, someone up the street this week lost their wife. Um, and, you know, we're, we're on board as a neighborhood to bring meals. Um, and that's, but I can't bring meals to everybody. Right, right. So, so like, just to be really intentional about who we're accountable for what I think is, is important in this day and age where we have so many people in our lives, so many friends. <laughs> no, that's what I really liked it. That was one of my big takeaways from the book was like thinking about the, these smaller groups um, and how you actually relate to them. And both pastors need to find their five. And then in a sense, everybody in the church has to have that five or a slightly larger group. And I also appreciate the clarity around because, yeah, you could have a class that's bigger or you could have a study group that's bigger, but a real intimate accountability, deep discipleship group is probably going to be a smaller group. And so that that was a in our age of bigger is better. I thought that was a powerful word that came out of the research that's instantly applicable within uh, churches um, and in and with our lives. Now, to go to the regulation piece a little bit. Now, I, I found that super interesting. And we were talking before we started recording about the whole issue of like disordered desires, the seven deadly sins, and, and really the Christian virtue mm -hmm. uh, that comes out of Greek philosophy of, of just this moderation that we have to practice temperance and regulation in our lives. So, um, what did, what have you learned from the psychology science that can help persons who struggle with regulation mm -hmm. and, and also, and how does the Christian faith, when we start talking about the Holy spirit mm -hmm. and God's grace, how does that fit in come alongside of our natural impulses? How do you, how do you think about that? And what insights have you got into say spiritual formation based on this whole issue of our ability to regulate, or in some cases to deform ourselves because we mm -hmm. don't regulate. Right, right, right. No, I think, um, I'm just, Brian, I'm really excited about the era we're in, in that we have a rich tradition of spiritual practices, and yeah. I do sense a resurgence in more contemplative practices. Um, I think the frenetic pace, um, the almost like frenetic insult of life, it's like just constantly coming at us that more people are naturally going towards contemplative practices to help regulate, to help calm, to help hear God's voice, to help hear God's voice in us, to help hear ourselves, um, to understand what truly matters um, in all the noise that is bombarding us. Um, and I'm so excited about that resurgence. And I'm really excited about the exploding neuroscience right now that is really helping us understand um, how contemplative practices actually and literally change our brains. Yeah. Um, that they help our brains connect in more productive ways. They help um, practices help us have more attention and focus than you know, less practiced minds. Um, and I would say attention and focus is one of the things that is robbing this generation or, or those generations alive right now of their well-being and sense of life satisfaction. Um, and I, I prefer the word joy over happiness. But when we're, we're so um, frenetic and frantic that we can't even be present to ourselves or present to others to connect, um, or present to know what matters to us, our deepest held values, it, it's hard to have a life of well-being um, and a life of satisfaction. Um, so I think that engaging in practices that help calm you um, or regulate you, that can help you 
attune and become more aware of your own feelings. I mean, whether it's you know, focusing on your breath, being aware of your breath, um, being aware of how you feel, where's pain in your body? <laughs> Is your back tight? Have too many Zoom calls? Um, and um, that all enables us to actually be more open to God's spirit. Um, and that when we have times of silence and solitude, it, it may not be in that moment that we're like, oh, and the Holy Spirit is telling me X. But I think that increases a capacity that I can't explain neurologically, you know, that there's a capacity that has us more open to God's spirit. Um, and I, I, I will ima I imagine that God works a lot through who we are. Um, and, and we need to be more attuned to ourselves to know how God is working in and through us. So, so do you think the contemplative stuff is sort of the natural next step coming out of the research that you've done? And, 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 and does that also mean if we would go back, if we could take a time capsule and, I don't know, go back 10,000 years and, you know, you pick the continent, were people more contemplative because that's how we were wired to be in the, like in our, with our Stone Age minds? And then the very advances that our brains have given us the capacity to make as a species that's actually deformed us in a way as well as given us, you know, prosperity and things. I mean, so would we have been more contemplative naturally and in a sense, spiritual practices are taking us back closer to our roots. I mean, any thoughts about that or is, um, <laughs> that's a profound question. Um, I, I, I mean, I really have to like overspeak my grounds because yeah. uh, I've yeah, actually they... not thought of that, but I think when we think like 10,000 years ago and, um, I hope this word is okay, more primitive persons, um, life was a lot simpler, you know, yeah. from a relational perspective, uh, learning, it was like, I got to learn how to make an, you know, an arrow. Um, I think our regulation was sim simpler too. We needed to know when to strike at the buffalo, or we needed know to know when to plant. There weren't as many complex issues to be regulated about. Um, and so one of the things that the mind, the brain has done has enabled us to think um, about more and more and more from at an abstract level and more complex systems of understanding. Um, and I think for me that although we maybe had better regulation back then, it was just simpler. And that the regulation that we need now is, is much more complex and I think it has a lot more to do with meaning making, mm -hmm. um, because I think with life simpler and not as many options, um, we didn't have to make as many decisions because there weren't as many options where today, um, I really actually think meaning making, our meaning systems, what we value is a very important part of our regulatory capacities. Because when we know what we value, we can regulate and choose the better goals, the better way. Um, and that, I think that meaning making comes at the intersection of relatedness, of what we're learning and our regulation. And I, I think I mean, one of my issues of the um, crazy and very broken place we are as a society is that not many people have cohesive meaning systems. Yeah. Um, you know, gone is the day where most Americans, A, knew and affiliated with like a Judeo-Christian ethic. Like what is right and wrong is completely up for grabs right now. Um, and, you know, we can be negative and say the world is going bad places in a handbasket, 
Or we could say, what an extraordinary opportunity. We're at a time where people are really beginning to reckon, especially since the pandemic, like how do I cope? How do I make sense of this? And how do, um, I think the biggest call on our generation um, or those living on the planet is how do we find a human story that we can all find ourselves in that encompasses, you know, I mean, for me, obviously, like the gospel would be the meta narrative, the big story of my life. But how can we include all humans in that? And how can we tell our story in a way that all of us can find ourselves in it? Because we need um, we need a way forward that's inclusive, um, that is respectful, that is civil, and and I firmly believe like when you have a, from a psychological perspective, when you have a story about your life and you know the role in your st the story, that's also where you find your purpose. That's good. And again, I'll start wrapping up the interview because you've been super generous and we just feel like we're just getting started here. But let me just ask one kind of big question. You can kind of wrap this up anyway, and then I want to get to the shorter ones. But so, you know, your, your, your biggest contribution to this book was kind of what you just hinted at, this whole issue of making meaning, of finding your purpose, your telos. So if you're speaking to pastors or even um, lay persons, lay leaders, how can how could what do they need to be asking themselves if in a in both an evangelistic context and and then just a sanctification or a disciple making context once that people have accepted Christ or found Christ how how what are the implications of your research to help the church then pass on this sense of purpose to people who feel again we you know you know the generations you work with young people just like i do and a lot of your research like you said it was with the adolescents and teens there's a lot of purposelessness or even overwhelm with all the options that people have now with what they're going to do so how can the church do a better job of proclaiming the real ends and purposes of life and then structuring their their churches to actually help people to thrive like that seems like the ultimate evangelistic tool come here and learn how to thrive right so what are your ideas about that and again i know that's a huge question that's a whole yeah. book right there but uh, uh, uh that is um that's maybe my favorite question uh -huh. but yes what what can the church do about all those things and i think that is I think that's the question for our age for the church in a church that is falling apart and declining is that we need to engage people in a way that enables them to thrive, become who God created them to bring, be, and bring that vitality back to the church. And, and something that if you're around Fuller, you're like, oh God, she's gonna say it again, but I'll say it here, <laughs> is you know, we spend a lot of energy, a lot of curriculum talking about what Jesus saved us from. Mm -hmm. and, and we are so grateful to be saved from sin and death but we don't spend enough energy on what Jesus saved us for. That's good. And I believe that the church's call in the future is to enable people to understand what they're saved for. And for me, that is getting on board with what the spirit is doing in this world now and continuing Jesus's ministry of reconciliation, but not to forget the new Jerusalem that we so rarely get to, and what God is working towards in this world. I, I think that um, it might be blasphemous, but I often want to end prayers about our Father Creator, the Son, the Redeemer, and the Spirit, the Flourisher. Mm -hmm. 
because I think God's intention is for creation to flourish in God's love, not to just be restored to what it was. No, no, no. God's got a much bigger vision than restoration. But consummation is, I believe, where we're headed. And if the church took the doctrine of consummation or really took this fulfillment of all creation or the abundant life we have in Jesus Christ seriously, I think we would do things completely different. And I think psychology is ahead of us here. I think psychology offers great tools on how people can understand purpose, um, great frameworks. Um, there's really great practices. Um, we, you know, as Christians, we're awesome at giving like spiritual gift inventories to understand our unique spiritual gifts. Um, we can do strength finder and understand, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of ways we can get at our human uniqueness, but the church really needs to come alongside people and give and nurture this sense of purpose that yes, this uniqueness is awesome and we, you need to understand it and celebrate it in service of the greater good. So how does that, who you are, Brian, like how did you become like a New Testament professor with a podcast on spirituality? Like you've done some really deep work to get there, I imagine, because you've completely broken out of the mold that you were really good at. <laughs> You're very awarded. You do great. Um, and what 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 is the call for you in that that wants you to do that as part of God's bigger purposes? Okay. So I think for pastors, helping people understand their lives as part of God's ongoing purposes is really important. No, I, I love that. That was that was that was a great answer too. And uh, it's like I always say, sign sign me up there. It's uh, it's always like it's always easier to get people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of people. And it's freedom from freedom for. And so I just love the way that you just yes. described that. And uh, yeah, you know, and, and that's the you know the whole reason I, st I started this podcast because uh, I want to be about. I love the word thriving. I love the word flourishing. And and it's like. Uh, I wanted this whole podcast is just to ask, ask deeper, bigger questions to, to help people to take the theology that's up in our heads and to get it into our bodies so that we're not just, you know, like I used to joke that you could have just cut my head off, stuck it on a box. And that still would have been me pretty much as long as I could still talk. And I've been over the last 10 years, I've been trying to reattach my head to my body and figure out how it means to, <laughs> to be a whole person. And, and I think Jesus came to make us fully human. And that's why I love, uh, the, the roots with the science that you've done. So, you know, thank you for the book. Um, let me ask just a couple kind of concluding questions. Again, thanks for the generosity of your time. And again, I hope people pick up a copy of Thriving with Stone Age Minds, Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing. And also check out Pam's um, book, A Reciprocating Self, which captures more, also her, some of her original thinking on uh, on thriving and flourishing and purpose. Um, so what would be next for you, Pam, in your own work? Is there like a book that you're kind of afraid to write or what do you think would be the next step in your research that you're, or something that you're working on even right now? Mm -hmm. Those are super, super great questions. Um, so I had the Thrive Center at Fuller Seminary. Um, and so I've got two somewhat major endeavors uh, and lots of little endeavors. But the major ones, the next book that I hope and that I'm terrified to write is one on what we were just talking about. Wow. Is really like, what does thriving mean from a theological and psychological perspective? Why thrive? Like, why should Christians attune to thriving? Um, and, and how, how does that occur in our lives? Um, so that's, and, and where is joy in that is, is, is the book that, um, that I hope to be um, 
working on in depth in the next year. I, and then secondly, the Thrive Center is actually in the process of translating our last two decades of research into practical resources that like Christian leaders can use um, with their people to enable them to thrive. So Fuller has developed a whole new online learning platform called Equip. Um, we're in the process of rolling out our first class on thriving. It's called, I think it's called an invitation to thrive, um, like reconfiguring the Christian life or reimagining the Christian life. Um, so just about what you were talking about. So those are those are two endeavors, and um, uh, and that feels scary for me. I'm a, I'm a developmental psychologist, so making resources for Christian leaders is a whole new thing. But it feels very important at this time. Um, and I'll just add, you know, the words like thriving and flourishing are are very popular right now, and they're needed. You know, after a pandemic, or we're still in it, um, people want that. I think Christians need to stand up into the public. <laughs> ear and say there's really substantive understandings of thriving means thriving is not just about me it's not the next self-help self-improvement it, it does have to do with helping yourself and self-care and knowing yourself but for the greater good i um my kids go to a catholic school and i've been super grateful for being immersed and exposed to some different catholic communities and i've really appreciated the idea of i often talk about thriving as becoming your best self with and for others yes. and that with and for others is very ignition and i i think america needs an understanding of how do we grow how do we thrive with and for others with and for god or for a higher purpose so that's I, I love that and, and again it comes out of the science because we're set up to relate and and sometimes right. in the modern world we tend to be want to be selfish and almost narcissistic and even even the whole business about being able to regulate and a, a lot of uh, certain streams in our culture you don't want to have any regulation do whatever you want and, and the christian right. faith can step right into that and talk about the beautiful picture of what life can really look like and so i, I just love that work and i look forward to seeing that so thank you for those projects um what about um for you, for yourself. And again, you don't have to be any more transparent than you want to be on this question, but I always like to ask, since this is a, I, I do try to focus on spiritual formation. Like what have you found mm. helps you as, you know, Pamela King to regulate yourself, be able to be your best self most of the time and, to, you know, live as the person that God created you to be. Do you have like go-to practices that allow you to stay grounded and be formed? I do. And if I don't keep practicing them, I feel very deformed, actually. So they um, have become very important to me. And that said, I kind of rotate through a host of practices. Um, I always need um, a calming practice. Um, so sometimes I will do various forms of centering prayer or silence or solitude. Um, sometimes if it's just too much monkey mind, um, I'll use more of a guided meditation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a huge fan of the app Pray As You Go mm -hmm. um, that comes out of England. I love their daily Lectios. I love their um, various examines, prayers of examines that they offer, and um, their retreats. Um, their Lenten retreat 2021. I, I like want to do an infomercial for them. I think I'm listening to it for the third time right now. It's great. Um, I also am a big fan um, in of mindfulness. And I do not know of Christian apps that do it as well. Um, as some science-based app. And the one that I'm most a fan of comes out of the University of Wisconsin. Um, there's the Center for Healthy Minds and they have an app called the Healthy Minds app. Mm. And it's really excellent. Um, it's super science-backed. Um, it, um, 
and yeah, I found it really helpful. And they focus on focus intention is the first module, connection is the second, insight is the third, and and purpose is the fourth. Um, so and then scripture reading, um, and and when I really need to slow down my brain um, and really writing journaling is really helpful. It's good. It's good. Those are my. And now, now the impossible question for any academic, if, if you're going to pick two or three books that have really helped to form you uh, spiritually, <laughs> other than the Bible, what, what would a couple of uh, go-to books be? And they don't have to necessarily be in even your field, but just two or three books that have really shaped you over the years mm -hmm. that, yeah, yeah. Um, since you did hint at that question previously, I thought about it. <laughs> I think the question, the book, the two first books that came to mind that have had really enduring impact on me um, are Henry Nouwen's Inner Voice of Love. Um, I think it is one of the more holy books I have ever read. Um, it's a very special book of his. Um, so the Inner Voice of Love. And then I haven't read it recently, but it, it was a bit of a... Uh, started a pivot in my life and that's Parker Palmer's let your life speak mm. is a really really wonderful book um so those were just two that came to me off the top of my head and David Benner's writing has also been extremely influential um a number of his books I reread those yeah like I'm more I've read it I've, I haven't read the Palmer book or the now book but I've read several Brenner's books and yeah they they really are good so well thank you so much Pam it's uh I'm just grateful for what the Lord's done in your life and how you've brought your learning expertise to uh to, to a seminary training to train pastors and bring in the the insights of developmental psychology and the, the gift that you have in writing these books so that the, the world can uh hear about your ideas and just thank you for the time today that uh, you've given to me and the, the all the folks that are listening to this episode. Well, you're welcome. My pleasure. Ask wonderful questions. And I'm really so excited about what you're doing, uh, both in individual students' lives in your classroom and through your writing and your ministry and your podcast. Um, it's so good to know that's going on on the other side of the country. That's, that's true, isn't it? That's what's so fun too, right? It's like you're in California, I'm in Orlando, and we still get to have this conversation. It's so amazing, the world that we live in today. So I'm super right. grateful for that. And yeah, and I'm, I'm excited about, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm about as excited about where my life is right now as I have been in pr probably my whole life. So I'm just super grateful for the, you know, ongoing work of learning and getting yeah. thought uh, thriving with Stone Age Minds was just so helpful. And um, we could have asked a, a lot of different questions too, but I'm just grateful for your time. And I also want to just thank everybody for listening all the way to the end of uh, this week's episode. And wow. until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be voices of hope in the world. Uh, amen. 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 Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it? If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle, recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press, ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying, say, any quantity over of at least three or more copies. You can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.